it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, my guest is Mike Barron. He is a novelist and a creator of Nexus and Badger, two of the longest independent superhero comics running today. He has published 15 novels, including the Biker and the Florida Man series. He has won two Eisners and an Inkpot Award and written for comic titles such as The Punisher, Flash, Dead Man, and Star Wars, among many others. He is here today to talk about Ron Starr, his latest creation. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks for having me, Terrence. Oh, of course. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about Ron Starr? Uh, well, I've long been an admirer of Pat Broderick. Pat Broderick is a giant in the industry. He's worked for uh, Marvel and DC. He do Micronauts, Firestorm, uh, many great titles. Uh, and uh, I, I asked Pat what he wanted to draw. And you see, he wanted to draw a supernatural Western. Well, that hit me right in the bullseye. I love Westerns. Mm -hmm. I've yep. written a couple of Western novels under a pseudonym for my publisher, Wolfpack. I don't do it regularly. Uh, mm -hmm. But when he, when he said that, it got the gears to spinning. So uh, I came up with this story about a former Quantrill's Raider, Harley okay. Brogdon, who was disgusted with the Raiders' activity after the end of the Civil War. He heads north, shooting game for the Army, gets in a poker game. And when a card sharp draws down on him, uh, Harley beats him to the draw and kills him. He doesn't understand that the man he just killed was the son of a very wealthy landowner named Wilfred Knorr, who will stop okay. at nothing to, to get Harley. So Harley's forced to go on the run. They chase him right out of the country. And he ends up in a tiny town at the foot of the Canadian Rockies called Cobb's Gap. Cobb's okay. Gap is very peaceful, especially after dark. And it has to do with the sheriff. Uh, the sheriff can't control himself at certain times of the month. Sometimes mm -hmm. he goes away until it passes, but sometimes he's stuck in town. And that's when he feeds. Oh, this, okay. This is not the big reveal about what's the supernatural menace here. The sheriff is part of it, but he's not the main supernatural menace. Uh, Harley fits right in. He likes the sheriff. He falls in love with a local woman named Nika, who runs a boarding house. Uh, Nika and the sheriff both come from the same small town in Croatia. Uh, and when he learns the sheriff's secret, he said, was he cursed in Croatia? And she says, no, he got the curse after we moved here. Okay. And the events unfold. When Norse posse goes north of the border and they track him down to Cobb's Gap and things really hit the fan at that point. Uh, right. So uh, Harley's forced to defend himself uh, and his girlfriend, Nika, and her daughter, Petra. Uh, and events escalate after that uh, until Norse shows up with a massive posse determined to get uh, Harley mm -hmm. and... Uh, and hang him from a tree, but not before showing him hours and hours of grief. They flee to the mine. The thing about the mine is nobody ever goes to the mine anymore. It was a silver mine. Right. And they, and they were told that it was uh, played out, but it's not played out. 
the real reason they don't go to the mine is because of what's hiding in the mine. And that doesn't appear until the very end of the story. Well, Pat Broderick, this is the greatest work of his career. Uh, okay. And anybody who's familiar with Pat Broderick's work is going to say, how is that Pat possible? Because Pat is one of the most detailed artists to ever work in the industry. When you see these pages, your head will explode. He's not somebody who just draws the figures up front and skates over the background. Pat right. draws everything, including the middle distance and the horizon. And his vistas of the West seem to go on forever, especially when he draws the mountains and the forests. It's just exquisite. It's so wow. beautiful and highly detailed uh, that we're offering an oversized black and white version as well, which we did successfully with Thin Blue Line. That was a big hit. Okay. Um, the coloring is extraordinary too. And Pat, uh, Pat, somebody, most artists are loath to make more work for themselves, but not Pat. He took scenes that I did that involved one or two panels and broke them down into four or five panels, adding to the page count. And every scene is detailed right down to the rivets on the blue jeans. It's just unbelievable. Wow. Uh, and, and if you want to take a look at it, you can go to bronzestarcomic.com. Uh, we're using uh, Fund My Comic, which is a brand new comic funding site. Uh, my goal is to grab the reader by the throat in the first couple of pages and drag him into the narrative to the exclusion of all else. And in right. order to do that, you have to have a story that captures the imagination. The most important question in fiction is, what happens next? Right. Because if, if the reader doesn't care about that, he's not going to turn the page. So you, or tune you have, into the show or anything else like that that's fiction. So yeah, yeah. you have to have something that's going to hook them and keep them staying there. Uh, and if you're in a movie, you may stick around a while because you paid seven bucks to get in. But right. after some point, you're going to say, this is going nowhere. You get up and walk out. With a comic right. book, you're just going to put it down. You're not going to force yourself to continue. Well, how right. do you make a reader care? And as you know, there are an infinite number of ways to make a reader care. I'm just going to touch on three. One, mm -hmm. a fascinating character. People can't get enough of Sherlock Holmes. Right. There are more Sherlock Holmes novels than there were during Conan Doyle's day. In fact, there are probably a hundred more Sherlock Holmes novels and movies than Conan Doyle ever envisioned because people can't get enough of Sherlock Holmes. Right. Yeah, it resonates. You know, you've got the London uh, streetscape and 1880s Victoria and London fog and uh, interesting characters. Yeah, that, that's what keeps people coming back for more. Uh, Holmes is fascinating uh, because as, as uh, Benedict Cumberbatch said in his series, he was a high functioning sociopath. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved that. And drug addict too. Yeah, drug yeah. Drug addict as well, yep. Uh, the second way you can uh, hook readers is with a fascinating situation. Jurassic Park comes to mind. It's an instant success because people interacting with real dinosaurs, what could go wrong? Uh, everybody loves dinosaurs, especially little kids. And right. the, lure, the lure of that milieu is irresistible, which is why they keep grinding out Jurassic Park sequels. Uh, and as is the case with most sequels, it's on a steady downward trajectory. Right. There are very few movie franchises that uh, outdo the original. Right. Uh, Aliens is one. Uh, some of the James Bond movies are. Uh, right. But mostly, once you start doing those uh, sequels, it's uh, just coasting on, on past glory. You only need to look at the Star Wars series. 
Uh, yes. Yeah. George Lucas wants to buy that back from Disney. I hope he does. Uh, yeah. the, the third way to hook a reader is with a seductive narrative voice. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, this is more important in straight prose than it is in, uh, in a comic book where the visuals carry the story. Uh, right. I always think of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, the two fathers of the modern hard-boiled detective story. Uh, Raymond Chandler in particular um, had a vivid way of writing. He was as inconspicuous as a tarantula on angel bread. <laughs> yeah, and, you're right about that. Yeah, and he's got a thousand phrases like that. Dashiell Hammett was very original too. Uh, right. But you can do it in a comic as well if you understand the form. And right. you understand that it's a visual medium and any information you can impart to the reader visually to advance the plot, you should. And right. save your words for characterization and sometimes to explain what's going on because that happens in real life. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you write it well enough, uh, it, it's part of the entertainment. I try to make sure that every one of my comics is there is no wasted space, no wasted words everything I put into that comic is designed to entertain, number one, and two, to advance the story. Uh, uh, right. There are a number of comic book creators who understood this, less so today, but I think of Archie Goodwin and Denny O'Neill, uh, yeah. Alan Moore when he first appeared, uh, Neil Gaiman when he first appeared, uh, right. Chuck Dixon. Uh, these guys understood the form and they understood that it was a visual form. And when you plaster a page with 500 words uh you're destroying the reader's interest we've all turned the page and come to one of those pages in comic books where there are 500 words in 12 right. captions covering up all the art and your first result is oh no you know i am no longer in the story i'm no longer right. following the character now i'm reading somebody's lecture Right. Yeah, that's what happens, too. I mean, you can get away with that in prose, but when you have a more visual medium like comic books, that just doesn't work as well. Yeah, I always think of Ayn Rand. One wishes she were a better prose stylist. So you read Atlas Shrug, and it's so verbose. And finally, when you oh. get to, to John Gold's speech at the end, it's like 100 pages long. You just want to say, stop, stop. Can, yeah. can you boil this down to a paragraph? Right. Yeah. yeah. And the Fountainhead, too. I had to read that in school. And God almighty, did I suffer through that one. I mean, you know, political views aside, it just was not an easily accessible book. I know. God. So, so, you have, uh, so with, when you come to do, when you approach writing a comic, you have to make sure that you have all those three elements together in order to keep the reader on the page. Absolutely. And you have to parcel your words out like gold coins. Mm hmm. You don't spray them across the page uh, and you have to watch yourself to avoid things that have been said a thousand times before, especially in comics, because it is so easy to fall back on convention. Comics right. are the most forgiving medium in the world and everybody thinks they can do a comic and everybody does, uh, but that doesn't <laughs> mean it's good. But, but when you find right. yourself writing, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore or right. move it people or we have to talk. You got to back away from, from the, the pad or, or the keyboard and, and rethink that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those sentiments, but you got to find a fresh way to say it. And I'm always looking for fresh language. Fresh language will spark the reader's imagination. And we need right. only look at, at phrases that have worked their way into the public consciousness, such as it's clobbering time. And we right. all know who says that was the thing. And, and, 
it was unique to him when Stan Lee first wrote it. Yeah, and the narrative style also is as important to comics as I think, in my opinion, as as the artistry is. Like uh, behind you on your green screen, you've got Batman Dark Knight uh, edition there. And those were, I think, the reason why people were drawn to Batman as opposed to maybe Superman or X-Men or somebody like that was the limit of prose and that allowed the image to tell the story. Ideally, but there have been some uh, Batman that are very wordy, as you know. Right, yeah, that's happened since. And the problem with Batman, he's such a popular character that, that by this point, there are probably 10,000 different Batman stories. I, yeah. And Sturgeon's law applies. Theodore Sturgeon was a great science fiction writer. And his law said 90% of everything is crap. Right, right. And, was, and, it's hey. the same, and you know what, it's the same thing here because you know that, that's why I wanted to have you on because I know you've got a huge amount of experience in comic books. And some people who read prose and, and fiction, even nonfiction, they'll say, oh, well, anybody could write a comic book, but it's not that easy. It's no. a highly collaborative uh, art in and of itself because it's not just you, it's also matching your story up with the right artist then the person who does the inks well and then the person who does the coloring it's it's a it's quite a process that people don't necessarily appreciate every time i go back over anything i've written particularly something uh, that's been commissioned that i have not yet let out of the house i pare it down i pare it down to the minimum amount of words i can get away with to mm -hmm. A, advance the story, and B, make it fun. Right. To characterize the characters. Right. Now, when you're writing a comic, when you're about to start a comic, whether it's your own or your commission to work for an established title, or you're writing a book, do you approach the project the same way as you're preparing for it? Or, like, for example, do you outline more for a comic versus a novel, vice versa? That kind of process. Uh, I outline for both. When, okay. I, when I started, I, I didn't use outlines at all. I would just sit down and I would draw the page out by hand in a notepad and mm -hmm. I'd draw the first panel and I'd think, well, what's going to draw the reader in? What's going to make this a compelling scene? Uh, and uh, the first time I did that was with Nexus. Because yeah, uh, Steve Rude and I were lucky enough to be in the right time at the right place. Right. When, a, when a new publisher, Capital Comics, decided they wanted to do a superhero comic. And I thought, well, every time the protagonist shows up, somebody dies, uh, that would be compelling. And that, that's not an original thought. That's the reason that popular entertainment has been dominated by uh, police, detective, right. uh, doctor, and legal shows for half a century because those professions deal with life and death. Right. And it's become a weary convention, especially among the big two, where you pick up virtually any superhero comic. And it used to be that the first page was a shocking scene of either action or right before the action is about to happen because right. the writer felt compelled to do that, to draw the reader in. Sure. Uh, but there are other ways to draw a reader in. If you give them a, a scene that's intriguing in and of itself, uh, that creates tension, mm -hmm. uh, then you're doing it right. Because as you know, uh, fiction is a series of tension and release. Tension and right. release. Uh, which is the same as music. Uh, and uh, I always think of a good story as a good pop song. Uh, 
it's got the tonic. We're getting bugged, right, driving up and down the same old street. We got to right. find a new place where the kids are neat. And then you have the bridge. <laughs> I get around all over town. And then you have the hook. And I try to do that in a, in a comic. And I try to do it over and over again in a novel. Uh, because a novel, when I say it's a dynamic narrative, you know what I mean? That means that the uh, protagonist's circumstances are always in question. He's, right. never, he's never completely happy. He's never completely content. Things are never permanently settled. Things happen to him or he does things that set things in motion. And that's right. where the, the tension comes from. Right. Yeah. The protagonist can't just be a bystander in the story. They have to actually promote the action. They have to uh, push it to that crisis point. And you're right. Yeah. A lot of times what you see now, especially in the more visual medium, like comics or in movies, it's, it seems like they, they go for complexity of plot rather than specificity of uh, character. Uh, yeah. And I have nothing against a complex plot, if it makes sense. And, and speaking of bystanders, you need only look at Sherlock Holmes because all the stories are filtered through the sensibility of Dr. Watson. Mm -hmm. But he describes, and he's right there in the action, and sometimes he takes a part. In fact, quite frequently, he's the one with the pistol. Right, yes. Right, yeah, he's the one who is always right there as the, uh, sometimes even as... Holmes, uh, more than just his sidekick, but more like his partner. And th that's why those stories work. I think that dynamic is why it, the character is still very popular today, because it's something that we can relate to and it's something that we enjoy watching unfold. Did you see the BBC series with Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah, and I, I watched it with one eye closed because I was fearing that they were going to ruin it by modernizing it, but I really enjoyed what they did there especially in the earlier seasons me too i thought the first two seasons were just brilliant it's right up there with jeremy brett as my favorite watch as my favorite homes exactly right yeah and brett always was very conscious of what was going on in the world while he was portraying a popular character i remember he was the one who didn't want uh he decided to tackle Holmes's addiction to cocaine specifically because he didn't want it to influence kids thinking, oh, well, this is a harmless drug. He wanted to show the downsides of it as well, which I thought was brave. Uh, I learned that Brent was a little obsessive compulsive and towards the end, uh, he mm -hmm. thought he was Holmes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was also in, I think he also spent time in a, a mental facility. And I think when he got out, uh, I believe uh, Edward Hardwick was there to pick him up, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been the other person who played Holmes, but he was uh, he very much did get into character a lot of the ways some great actors do today. I think of um, Jeremy Strong uh, and Succession. Apparently, he got so far into character, he annoyed everybody else on the cast. Yeah, I, you hear that about method actors. There's a great story about the, the making of Marathon Man. Um, oh, okay, yeah which uh, starred Dustin Hoffman uh, and, uh, and Laurence Olivier. And, and Hoffman was a method actor. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in order for him to get into the scene, he would spend hours becoming that character. And uh, uh, Olivier uh, said to him, 
why don't you try acting, dear boy? It's so much easier. <laughs> yeah, I remember that because he, he also said another interview where he says about method acting, he says, you know, if they do it, if they go too far with it, it starts to become a documentary and not a drama play. And right. I thought that was very interesting. He says, we, most people don't want to watch a documentary. They want to be told a story. Nowadays, it's completely flipped on its head with the proliferation of reality TV and, and suppose, quote unquote, unscripted content. That's not really unscripted. Uh, people are desperate for entertainment, especially today when Sturgeon's Law is creeping up on us. Uh, and you look at the major film studios uh, putting out one dog after another. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into the reasons for those, except that they forgot their primary mission, which is to entertain. They don't think right. about entertainment first. They think about the message they want to impart. And, and uh, as Samuel Goldman said, if you want to send a message, use, use Western Union. Right. Right. Yeah. People, you know, they ultimately want to have escape, especially now that the real world encroaches on our every moment of every day with smartphones and Internet and uh, social media stuff. It, it's good to be able to unplug a certain part of your life. And it seems like the fun is out of creating that. Well, there are good movies out there if you know where to look. Yes, there are. Yeah. And, there's, and I think especially on the streaming services, too, you're seeing I, I think a golden age of some wonderful performances and, and some great writing and daring direction. But you're right, yeah, it's not readily available. You have to dig for it a little bit. Um, my last uh, book before Bronze Star was Private American. And I wrote it because I asked myself what the Punisher would be doing today if I were writing him. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seemed obvious to me that he would be on the southern border trying to stop the flow of human traffickers, fentanyl and terrorists are pouring across the Rio Grande and being flown to cities all over the country in the dead of night. Now, right. now 10, 10, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, this would not be a controversial idea uh, because even a child understands that no organism, neither a single cell nor a nation can survive without controlling its, its borders. That's just axiomatic. But we seem yeah. to have lost sight of a lot of wisdom these days. Um, so I did the book and there was tremendous pushback, uh, but the book was, was a big success. Uh, it's available now if you go to theprivateamerican.com. We're mm -hmm. also on Fund Your Comic. Uh, that's not where we raise the bulk of our funds to do the book, but that's where we are now because it's first and foremost creator friendly, which you cannot say uh, is true of Kickstarter or Indiegogo. I mean, they keep right. uh, they keep bumping people off for spurious reasons, uh, and it's because oh I don't like this person he doesn't think exactly as I do. Yeah, well that's the problem too. I mean there's there's art, and uh, when it comes to art, it's subjective, and let the best product win as opposed to trying to interfere with the uh, picking winners and losers. Right. Uh, but, have you seen Bone Tomahawk? I did. Yeah, that was a, that was one of those things that came to mind when we were talking about great movies or great storytelling um, a little bit earlier. That was that was a rough, rough ride, but got some great performances out of some, um, you know, I would say not as well known uh, actors and some great direction. too. yeah, S. Craig Zoller is an interesting guy. His next movie uh brawl in cell block 99 blew me away it is harsh oh, yeah 
That yeah. is harsh. Yes, yeah. that was. Yeah, it was harsh. But you know, once you know what you're getting into, you're not just going to be sitting there on a Saturday morning with your kids and say, "Hey, let me put on uh, Riot at Cell Block 99" for the family. <laughs> you're going. You know what you're getting into with that. And you know, Vince Vaughn showed a lot of range in that that we hadn't oh, yeah. seen from him in previous when he destroyed that car. I believe he did that with his own bare hands. Yeah, he did. Because, uh, you know, you forget how much of a big guy he is. And, um, you know, that that was a great movie to showcase some talents we hadn't seen from him before. Uh, his last dragged across concrete, I thought it dragged. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, especially it, towards the end. Yeah. And I hope it hasn't hurt uh, Zoller's ability to do further films. I, I look forward to what he's doing. Uh, another director uh, that I like is um, Antoine Fuqua, who oh, did. Yeah. Uh, he did Training Day. Yes. And, and then the he did and the Equalizers. Well, the Equalizer is brilliant. People say, "What's the best Punisher movie?" Uh, I say, "The Equalizer is the best Punisher movie." Yeah. And uh, Equalizer Three is coming out later this year. Yeah, that promises to be a good ride. The second one was kind of a letdown, but I think this third one looks like it's going to uh, regain its form. And I love Denzel Washington. I can watch him in anything. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. Uh, Fuqua also did Southpaw, which I think is one of the best boxing movies I've seen in years. Oh, right. Yeah, I had heard about that one. Yeah, that was a very brutal one too. But, you know, it's a boxing film. It's not supposed to be uh, deer and unicorns. Right, right. You have to know your audience with that one. So for um, Ron Starr, are you uh, envisioning this to be a graphic novel or a series of comic books? Oh, issues? it's a graphic novel. There are 59 pages of story. Okay. Uh, and I've already written uh, a sequel. And Pat has already started illustrating it. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's not going to be out for a while because uh, I can only do one crowdfunder at a time. Some right. of my my friends can do multiple crowdfunders because they have a bigger reach, uh, but we prefer to concentrate on one at a time. And and the next one we're doing after Bronze Star is Florida Man number two. Uh, <laughs> we, we, and, and of course, the purpose of Florida Man is is just to make you laugh. That's my most popular novel by far. Yeah, and I remember some people were criticizing and say saying that it was taking itself too seriously there's nothing serious about it i mean it's it's well done but i mean it's it's clearly satire and if you read it like it's a treatise or if you read it like you're being serious about it that there's, there's nothing from the from the cover all the way through there's nothing there that says that this is a statement on uh oh thank uh, you politics today no it's it's one it, it's fun it's it's what it is again you know what you're getting into when you buy it it's it's perfectly fine. I never understood that criticism about that one. Well, the challenge with Florida Man is to get Gary and Crystal into the most humiliating situation I can and then get them out again. That, you know, that was, as I say, I don't choose my stories. My stories choose me. And, right. and, and cho Florida Man chose me by coming at me, coming at me. Every time I went online, right. there was another Florida Man story. And if people aren't familiar with, with the uh, uh, the convention, the headlines, here's a couple that, that I recall vividly. Florida man insists syringe found in rectum is not his. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the news every day, there was something like that for a while. It still is, but they've changed the wording up a little bit. But yeah, no, I mean, it was a great premise and it was clearly satire. I mean, the cover had a guy riding an alligator, for God's right. sake. And right. it, it was, 
it, it clearly conveyed what it was. So when people jumped on you about it being controversial, it's, it's satire, for Christ's sake. It's not, uh, he's not writing Gone with the Winds or uh, the Federalist <laughs> Papers here. It, it did not have that at all. No, I don't understand how anybody could think it was controversial <laughs> unless, unless you're, uh, 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 have Victorian sensibilities because then it can seem a little uh, uh, gross. Uh, right. But, but I try not to dip into that. I mean, uh, Gary Duba is, he's a redneck living in a trailer down by the swamp. He's got a hair trigger temper. He likes to get high. He likes to get stoned. He's been in and out of jail his whole life for minor infractions, public drunkenness, failure to pay child support. But he's got a right. heart of gold, and he give you the shirt <laughs> off his back, and that's the saving grace of of, of the books, which is why people mm -hmm. keep coming back because he's honestly a very likable character, uh, and he's got no filter, and he says things that people often think but don't dare say. Right, right, and that's again, people knew what they know what they're getting into when they read it, and when they re see the cover, and then they read the back of it. It was uh, it, it's art for its own sake, and I thought it. Uh, it delivered well for what you were trying to do there. And um, most of your books are like that too. You know what you're you're getting and you get a really solid story that keeps people coming back because you've been doing this for an awful long time. Well, it took me 30 years to learn how to write a novel, but that's because I'm a slow learner. <laughs> I think every novelist can, uh, has some kind of lesson. It took him a long time to learn about one aspect of this business or yeah. another. Um, I know you've got a lot going on. So what's the best way that people can keep track of what you're doing and what your next project is going to be? Well, you know, social media, website, that kind of stuff. I'm on Twitter at Bloody Red Baron. I'm on there Facebook at the Comics and Novels of Mike Baron. Uh, I have my own website, which we need to goose up. It's bloodyredbaron.com. We're going to be working mm -hmm. on that. Uh, and I'm on Substack as Mike Bear, and I've been very busy on Substack writing essays that just cover the gamut. Some are serious, some are funny, uh, some are only designed to make you laugh. Right, and that's, that we need a little bit more laughter and liberty in our lives these days with everything going on. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me and my audience. I know this is the first time we had anybody sing on the program, so you gave us a <laughs> musical interlude. It's like a Howard Hawks production. Oh, you know, they, had, <laughs> they had people singing in the middle of the West and you're like, Jesus, stop. But uh, anyway, people liked it. So anyway, well, thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate this. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. And everybody, this has been another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We will see you next time, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.